You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM. This is Alexa. Thank you all for tuning in to the third episode of the book broadcast. I am excited to welcome you all back to the show, a show which gives me an excuse or rather a fun opportunity to talk about some of my favorite books with some of my favorite people. Today, I have the privilege of introducing our second ever guest to the show, Andrew Davidson. Say hello, Andrew. Hi there. How are you doing? Hi. We are so glad to have you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you on. Just to tell you a little bit about how I know Andrew, we actually met on WIP kind of through a mutual friend because I know Patty and she's... Good friend of mine, yep. Yeah. So we both were on WIP, lived in the Hillsdale housing, and that's kind of how I got to know him. He knows a lot about Scansion. He helped me with my poetry quiz. So <laughs> I quickly um, had a lot of respect for him because I, <laughs> I, I, think, sh- <laughs> I think you got a better grade on that poetry exam than I did. I highly doubt that. <laughs> I, I remember you would like in class when we would practice, you would count out the beats in class. I was like, oh, I really hope he does that during the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's a little bit of how I got to know him. Being on WIP with him was really great, and we kind of talked about having him come on the show during that semester since we were gone in the spring, so it's great to finally be able to bring him on now. So here. do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a senior this year at Hillsdale. I'm a philosophy major. I'm sorry, too. Uh, <laughs> probably should have been an English major, like Alexa, uh... politics or something. <laughs> uh, but no, philosophy is great. And yes, I was very glad to do the semester in D.C. program through Hillsdale in the spring. Great program. Got to be in the Capitol and the Senate offices yeah. all throughout the time when um, the Ukraine invasion was going on. Mm-hmm. That was pretty scary, mm-hmm. but learned a ton. And whenever I needed to escape from that, I would, I would go talk literature with uh, our friends at the Hillsdale house. <laughs> and yeah, lots of good conversations about Dostoevsky already with Alexa. So very excited to have another one here. Yeah, it makes me really excited to hear that. And it's great to have you on the show. You're awesome. Before we jump into things, I decided that I wanted to, to start commemorating my guests' appearances um, by having them say the call letters. So I was going to give you a chance to go and say that. So I'll go ahead and um, say them for you. And you can repeat it back after me. Is that okay? That's fine. All right. So you're going to go. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM. Dang, he's going to take my job. Okay, that was really good. So (laughs) thank you for that. And um, thank you for becoming an official guest of the show. All right, now we're going to go ahead and jump into things. So today we're going to be discussing a pretty famous piece of Russian literature from the 1860s. I'm going to go ahead and lay down some fast facts so we can jump right into the meat of the text. Notes from Underground. The book we're discussing is by Fyodor Dostoevsky, and this was a novella written by Russian novelist (laughs) Fyodor Dostoevsky in 1864. It is split into two parts. So part one is written in a confession-esque style, and part two is written in a narrative form. So in his um, 1986 essay, Dostoevsky, The Stir of Liberation, 1860-1865, Joseph Frank asserts that basically part one is, quote, is an attack on Chernyshevsky's philosophy of rational egoism. So in 1863, Russian philosopher Nikolai Chernyshevsky wrote a book um, in which he basically proposed the idea that, as Frank states, man is kind of innately good. So if he just uses reason and science to create the perfect society, he will be able to rid society of its ills and, you know, create this great crystal palace, as we will come to understand it in Dostoevsky's work. So 
Dostoevsky thought this theory of rational egoism, um, of finding the perfect calculations for life so that man can achieve the best form of society, was pretty naive and dangerous for the Russian people. In part one, Dostoevsky addresses the fact that man will gladly act against his own advantage, you know, against rationality, for the sake of, you know, his own personal, like, hopes and desires, so that he can exert his own will, and which we'll get into this more later, but that's kind of what part one is about. But part one and part two express Dostoevsky's, Dostoevsky's feelings toward the social movements breaking out in Russia during the 1840s and 1860s. So the general understanding, as stated by Joseph Frank in Justin Jackson, that's our very own Justin Jackson, <laughs> is that part two basically represents, um, the, the narrator in part two basically uh, represents a man of the 1840s. So these men were romantics. They took all of their aspirations and social concerns from books. They wanted to free the serfs and approach the question of woman's status in society and similar things of enlightenment. But unfortunately, these men were the type of people that just circulated pamphlets and were just kind of a bunch of aristocrats discussing random intellectual ideas. So this particular period of inaction gave rise to the men of the 1860s, the rational egoists. Um, these rational egoists basically insist that following one's own self-interest will lead to the perfect social structure. So self-interest and self-advantage is the most important thing. It will lead men to formulate the perfect society. Um, and these type of men, uh, Dostoevsky will refer to as the men of action in uh, the work. So in part one, the narrator uh, basically challenges the rational egoists, taunting them, satirizing naive claims of the rational egoist, but also admitting that in the end, he does not really have anything else to turn to. In sum, the work looks at the various social movements that were rising up at the time, all of which were grounded in some sort of socialism and the findings of the scientific revolution. So many of these ideas prioritize the advantage of the individual and kind of come from Western ideas, which Dostoevsky is quite wary of in the context of the actual needs of the Russian people. So, any thoughts on that, Andrew? No, I think that's a brilliant summary. I'm excited to dig more into it with specific passages from parts one and two. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, that was kind of a long-winded explanation. Do you have any um, specific thoughts? Um, like, what were your thoughts when you first read the work? What does it mean to you now? Get into that a little bit if you can. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've admired Dostoevsky for a long time. I was actually, um, at the end of high school, I was a custodian at my church and um, shared a building with a private school and I would just wander through the halls with a pair of wireless earbuds and an audible subscription and just knock out a bunch of great novels and pieces of nonfiction, and I loved it so that was my first exposure to Crime and Punishment, The Brothers K and, mm -hmm. and I read Nostrum Underground a little bit later and it is absolutely fascinating. I think it's a sort of condensed form of a lot of the things that Dostoevsky develops later about the complexity and contradictions of human nature and how no political system can cure us from that sort of thing. It has to happen on an individual and communal level, and it's not going to happen perfectly. So I'd say all of his writing is anti-utopian in that way. <laughs> that is very accurate. You know, and before we jump into our break, can you provide me, I just gave a long spiel, um, kind of like a quick summary of part one and part two. Do you feel equipped to be able to do that? Well, part one, like you said, is a uh, series of loosely connected chapters that are a little more philosophical in nature. There's no narrative to them, and he's just reflecting on his own meager condition and how he's um, super ill, and, and he says something's wrong with his liver, but he's <laughs> concerned that 
if he seeks his own health, he's somehow less real as a human being. He's mm-hmm. not asserting himself. And so he's addicted to this idea of uh, needing to exist in a, in a full form outside of any rational scheme. And so he says, my liver is bad. Well, let it get worse. <laughs> right. um, and, and so, yeah, like you said, Alexa, he's making fun of rational egoists and um, other kinds of progressives and the socialists and he's talking about how absurd their systems are and then um but also how divided he is he he's obsessed with this idea of the beautiful and the sublime and how he wishes that he could achieve it in his own life and admire it um but he doesn't admire it because he doesn't live up to it all the time he's incapable of really being anything in his own estimation he he says he even wishes he could be a lazy man, a glutton, or mm-hmm. a loafer, but um, he can't even do that, really. He's paralyzed by knowing that, uh, how stuck he is and how divided he is. So he's just a bundle of contradictory desires, really. And right. part two fleshes that out in a narrative way, um, those fantasies and bookish daydreams um, that Alexa was like, talking about a little bit, they all play out. And he's... You know, he wants to have friends, but he also wants to assert his power over his friends. And so he doesn't mm-hmm. end up getting any friends and picks the wrong people to start with. Um, <laughs> right. He wants to be noticed. And so he goes through this elaborate ritual of buying a coat and uh, getting really expensive you know, lining on it uh, just to shove another officer in the street. Mm-hmm. But the officer doesn't notice him. <laughs> uh, so he went through all that plan for nothing. And he, he really obsessed over it. It was fun to read, although pretty depressing. And then he falls in love and but doesn't really fall in love just because he's, again, addicted to power, to being independent. And so he recognizes that being attached to this girl, Lisa, it would, be, would be a weakness in him. Um, mm-hmm. And so he insults her, curses her, and she runs away, and that's how the part two ends. It's pretty sad. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. That was a perfect summary and, like, already starting to pull in some of that analysis, which lies kind of close to the surface like um, Dostoevsky wants us to kind of understand what he's getting at he he's he's a lot of thoughts um but we're going to take a quick break and get back to you shortly um thank you for tuning in you're listening to the book broadcast on Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM All right, and we're back. You're listening to the book broadcast on Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM. All right, so Andrew just gave us a spectacular summary of part one and part two. So we are going to start by diving in and taking a closer look into part one. Andrew, do you have anywhere in particular you want us to start us off, or do you need a quote or anything? Absolutely. I'd love to talk more about that. There's um, so much to dig into more than we can in this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, podcast highly encourage you to go read that book but part one i said and like alexa said it's largely an attack on different philosophies that all have one core assumption behind them that human nature can be re-educated that's that's a huge question it's been around since plato's republic and ancient times that whether or not the system that we're in politically and, and our developments in things like science can reorder individual humans to the point where they don't do ugly, bad things anymore. It's a great dream to have enough wealth and civil organized people to not worry about war and famine and stuff like that anymore, but that's 
that's exactly what it is. It's utopian. And um, Dostoevsky says that all those assumptions that human beings makes mischief, I believe is his phrase, that mm. we, you know, we make mischief against each other only because we don't know what our real interests are. The paradoxicalist, the underground man, he calls that person a babe, a pure innocent child, <laughs> encourages them to take another look at human nature. Sometimes the thing that we want to do and the thing that's good for us, the things that's in our advantage, are direct opposites. Right. And that's, that tendency seems to be pretty incurable in human beings, especially on the level of a whole system. So Right. And that's why like the Crystal Palace, which is kind of like the manifestation of the rational egoist idea, mm -hmm. is a farce. And, you know, he calls it out as much. It's interesting because we can't really trust the narrator. Like he admits that he lies. But then he takes a full frontal attack of this idea of the rational egoist and whatnot. And it's it's interesting because his attack is kind of conjoined with a failure of a man of the 1840s like he we see in part two like he wants the beautiful and sublime he wants all the goods he wants the common good he wants the brotherhood or whatnot mm -hmm. but he's starting to realize as Dostoevsky's posing to us and like he, he wants us to notice this what do we know about the self what do we know about self-interest what do we know about advantage what do we know about actual brotherhood and community with other people what do we actually know how does society inform that and what are the actual goods i mean dostoevsky is a highly religious writer so obviously community is pretty close to religion and mm -hmm. whatnot so like and i mean you can see kind of like his desire to really truly know another person in part two with liza too you know yeah yeah you, you wonder how much of his spite the underground man's <laughs> spite just comes from his alienation it's probably yeah most of it but i also think that dostoevsky is using this spiteful character to talk about the, the, the real naivety of some people who, the political economists, for instance, who <laughs> thought that you could rationally calculate human desire, you know, the utilitarians. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end, the socialists who think that the advantage of the working class will usher in a new era of happiness for everyone. But both have a, a common root, which is that, again, if you restructure society, sin is no longer a problem. Uh, ingratitude is no longer a problem. Right. And for the underground man, well, he calls, he calls a human being an ungrateful animal. That's mm -hmm. his definition of humanity. And, and you can't take away that ingratitude. One of my favorite quotes is, mm -hmm. you know, if we actually got that utopian system to work for a second, socialist or progressive or whatever you want to <laughs> want to call it, yeah. uh, if, you, if we actually got it to work, uh, someone would stand up one day and say, uh, gentlemen, why don't we topple all this sensibleness with one stroke, boot it into the dirt for the sole purpose of sending all those logarithms to the devil and living once again according to our own stupid will. Right. Which is like, it's so accurate and it's so, it's amazing how these ideas play out in his work, like how he represents like the actual desire people have for community and not these manufactured systems. Like I'm just brought back to that line on 88 after, you know, so Liza is this prostitute that the underground man has been kind of socializing with. And he, you know, he acts like the people in books act, you know, he's going to save her, he's going to be her hero. Mm -hmm. But suddenly she starts to save him and he doesn't like the shift of this power dynamic. So he gives her the five rubles and implies you're a whore and kind of shoes her out of his life. And he says, and shame her for having come to hear words of pity from me. But I never could have guessed that she'd come not to hear words of pity at all, but to love me 
because it's that kind of love that a woman finds in her resurrection, etc. And it's just like, this is actually what he's looking for. But he is just so crippled by, you know, his spite, by his naivete, by his bookishness, um, by some desire for some sort of system to kind of take control, but also this desire to rail against the system that he just, he can't love her. Yeah. Yeah, he's offered a chance at happiness, a little bit like those characters in his utopian idea, and he rejects it. Right. And it's sad to see, but sometimes people do do that if they're so concerned Mm -hmm. with knowing that they're alive, knowing that they make choices, knowing that they have free will, Mm -hmm. that they're willing to do anything to prove that to themselves. And that's a related passage about the development of science and scientism, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. some people in the 19th century genuinely thought that free will was an illusion that we could crack if we had enough mathematical, you know, sort of political economy savvy again, right. where the individual will is, is lost in all of those calculations about how we react to stimuli. And the underground man, and I think also Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. is quite terrified by that idea that you can predict all of it. And so even if that's true, even if there is no such thing as free will in the abstract sense, on an individual level, human beings are going to rebel against that. They're going to break the system. And they're going to do anything to prove that they're not a piano key, I think is his, oh, his word. Oh, yeah, definitely. And honestly, I'm gonna, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break before we wrap up. So thank you so much for tuning in. You are listening to The Book Broadcast on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We are back. You are listening to the book broadcast on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. All right, we're going to start uh, wrapping up things. I guess, are there any key passages you want to um, draw our attention to or point out as we wrap up or anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'll, I'll defer to you about that. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to be said. I would just, it's interesting how Dostoevsky decides to conclude the novel in mm. that uh, he spurns Lisa, she runs away. And then he, the character, the underground man, half-heartedly runs after her and tries to get her back and feels remorse, but he knows that he would hate her tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, that, it's that combination of completely opposite emotions that's so fascinating. And in fact, Dostoevsky's own name for the underground man is the paradoxicalist, uh, the person who right. holds opposite things at the same time. And um, and so, you know, the, the book, the very last lines of the book mm-hmm. are, okay, I'm going to stop writing. I don't want to write from underground anymore. But then Dostoevsky includes a footnote that says the notes of this guy, the paradoxicalist, don't end here. <laughs> In spite of himself, he had to keep going and, and we just decided to cut it. Exactly. I, it's funny. I was just talking to Jackson, like Justin Jackson, who I'm taking the Dostoevsky class with right now. And he was just mentioning that. And it's interesting because... When you're a writer, whether or not you're this sort of person where you think you just need to isolate yourself from the world, when you're writing and then when you're publishing, you become aware of the other. You're mm. forced to leave the self. You are forced to be in communion with the other because mm. you are writing. He, he's lying. You can, I mean, he admits that he's going to lie throughout and he lies again as if he's writing for himself, as if he's going to stop. He can't stop. He can't be alone. So Yeah, yeah it emerges out of a need to, to not be alone. Yeah, exactly. Just community plays such a big role in his works. And it's interesting because, I mean, Notes from Underground and then The Double, one of his earliest works, also 
The characters and the ideas that grow out of these works manifest themselves repeatedly in Brothers K, Crime and Punishment, Devils. All these preceding works like have these voices that are, you know, first tapped into in these beginning novels. So it's really cool to to like see the way that his literary voice develops too. So Absolutely. No, it starts out pretty early and Mm -hmm. it's um Raskolnikov and Sonia in Crime and Punishment are a more ultimately positive sort of redemptive example (laughs) of what doesn't happen what almost happens in in notes from underground but doesn't happen the the narrator the main character rejects what raskolnikov eventually has to do which is Mm -hmm. repent uh, and embrace his dependency upon other people and renounce his need for power Mm -hmm. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating stuff and i think very important and stuff that dostoevsky apparently struggled with personally in his own life he uh had true mm-hmm. powerful desires that were carrying him in multiple different directions. He was in love. He was a great man of literature from a young age, and yet he was also a gambler. He was addicted to yep. gambling, yep. ended up had, having to run away from debtor's prison and beg mm-hmm. from his family. And so he, he understood this pull of contrary desires, and, and it, I think it's what lends so much power to his characters. Right. Definitely, 100%. Honestly, couldn't have ended it better myself. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. And thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. It was a pleasure to have you on. So good to be here, yeah. Yeah, you were amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. You have been listening to the book broadcast on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Tune in next time from some other thoughts from some other guests. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you guys later.